It is good to be out here in worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It is good to be here. Amen. Good morning, Risen Hope. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, please uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. Verse 51, I'm sorry, verse 51 through 54. When you get there electronically or otherwise, say amen. Let's, uh, all right, trying to get my position here. All right, Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into this holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. I want to preach on the topic, the torn veil. God will make a way out of no way. Talk to your neighbor and say, God will make a way out of no way. Father, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord God, to open up your inspired, inerrant word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will open up the eyes of our hearts that we may see our great high priest, Lord. And in seeing him, Lord God, we may believe and follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. And the people of God say amen. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all said it happened. They said the veil of the temple was torn in two. But oddly enough, none of them explained why it happened. Yet Matthew highlights that this is a very powerful object lesson that you will never forget. Matthew primarily writing to a Jewish Christian audience would know exactly what Matthew was talking about. See, you really do have to grasp the original function and purpose of the veil in order for you to appreciate why it was ripped in half in the first place. So travel back with me uh, into biblical history to understand the function and the purpose of the veil in order to appreciate what took place when the veil was torn in the aftermath of Christ's death. First, let's look back to understand in order to move forward in Christ. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, the scripture tells us that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They made fig leaves to cover themselves. Yet, 
their, their covering was not adequate. The scripture also says that God, after confronting them, sacrificed the first animal sacrifice to provide coverings for them. And then this particular verse projects out into the far future the simple truth that only God can provide a sacrifice sufficient for mankind's sin. You see, ever since the Garden of Eden, mankind has been making sacrifices to God. I'm trying to see here, I can't really see my notes. In order for them to draw near to God, Cain and Abel, from Cain and Abel to Noah after he exited the ark in Genesis chapter 9, all of the patriots, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, made sacrifices to the Lord. But it wasn't until God gave the law to his people Israel through Moses that he required a very specific, detailed plan for sacrifices, as we will see in Leviticus 16. Animal sacrifices were made weekly to remedy the sins that were committed while people were relating to God. And even before God commanded and gave the law to Moses in Exodus 20, God gave very clear instructions for how the people were to approach him on Mount Sinai as that mountain went billowed up in smoke like a furnace. Limits were placed around the Mount Sinai so that people would not break through and perish. Now, while Moses is up there receiving the commandments, God told him to take up a contribution from every person whose heart is moved to give to build the sanctuary where the Lord can dwell in their midst. Exodus 25, verses 3 through 9, with the key verse 8 and let the people make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I will show them. And then we arrive to chapter 26 that begins to lay out the instructions for how to pattern and construct the tabernacle. You see, the tabernacle was a portable worship center where God can dwell among his people as they journey to the promised land. One commentator called it a portable Mount Sinai. Approximately one-fifth of the book of Exodus is devoted to giving instructions on how to build the tabernacle. This tent of meeting was later patterned or the prototype for the temple that King Solomon built. The tabernacle was built with three sections, the courtyard, you had the holy place and you had the most holy place. The first part was the courtyard with a fence. This is where Israel would gather. And as Exodus regularly emphasizes, only those who are holy can live in God's presence. To approach God otherwise has fatal consequences. See, without the courtyard functioning as a, as a, as a buffer zone, the people of God would not be able to, it would be impossible for them to dwell in safety close to God. Every part of the tabernacle was built to keep people safe and at bay. 
You see, the, the courtyard was adjacent to two separate rooms, sacred rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. You see, the holy place was where the priests gathered weekly to minister. No one ever just hung out there in the holy place. You did your business and you bounced. You left. And then there was the most holy place, separated by a 60 feet inner curtain called the veil, tightly woven together, a thick impenetrable veil. Embroidered on it was two figures of cherubim angels, and they were placed there as a reminder to everyone that the, that the way into the immediate presence of God was barred from sinful man. And as we will see played out with Adam and Eve driven from the garden, a, a, a cherubim was placed there to guard the way to the tree of life. But God will make a way out of no way. The only person that was allowed into the holy place was the high priest, and that was only once a year on a special day called Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement. It was a highly anticipated day of sacrifice central in the life of Israel. Leviticus 16 goes on to describe the process of entering to the holies of holies. Let me use the, the summary of the Old Testament scholar Ray Dillard. He says, here, here is it. He said, a week before, a week beforehand, the high priest would put, was put into in, um, seclusion, and then he was taken away from his home. He was put in a place where he was completely alone. Why? So he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything that was unclean. Clean food was brought to him, and he would wash his body and prepare his heart. And the night before the Day of Atonement, he would stay up all night praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. Then on Yom Kippur, he bathed from head to toe and dressed in pure, unstained white linen. Basically, he did this three times. Then he went into the holies of holies, behind the sacred veil, and offered an animal sacrifice to God to atone or to pay for the penalty of his own sins. And after that, he went out and bathed completely again and put on new white linen, was put on him, and he went in again. And this time, sacrifice was made for the sins of the priests. But that's not all. You see, he went in, he came out again a third time, and he bathed again, from head to toe, he dressed in brand new pure linen, and he went into the holies of holies, and this time he went in to atone for the sins of all the people of Israel with the blood of goats, unquote. You see, there was nothing obscure or complex about the symbolism of these sacrifices. On the day of atonement, said to the people, in essence, as the priest stood there and stabbed the bull in the neck, here is what your sins deserve, death. It was obvious. It was simple, but it was terrifying, but it was obvious. Sin always results in death, period. 
It was a bloody ordeal for centuries until Christ's arrival. For the scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Every time the high priest went into the holies of holies, gold bells were attached to the hem of his garment with a, a rope tied around his ankle. And he could be heard moving around in the holy place. And the purpose of the bells attached to the priest's garment was so that he could be heard moving in and coming out of the holy places, lest he die, according to the scriptures. See, this was all done in public. The temple area was crowded and people in attendance were watching, watching very closely. And then, then there was a, a thin veil and he bathed behind it. And the people were present. They saw him bathe. They they watched him dress and go in and come back out. He was their representative before God, and they were there cheering him on. They were very concerned to make sure that everything was done properly and with purity because he represented them before God. You see where I'm going? And if something went wrong on the day before Yom Kippur, he was cut. And some other qualified priest would take his place. And if something went wrong on the day of Yom Kippur, behind the veil in the glorious presence of God, the bells, if they were no longer heard, the priests that were in the holy place would have to pull his dead body out of there with, with the rope that was tied around his ankle. You see, it was abundantly clear that if anyone besides the high priest who had ever entered into a holy place unauthorized, he would be struck down. And if the high priest entered on a day other than the day of atonement, he would be struck down. And if the high priest came without the blood of a goat, he would be struck down. The way into the holiest of holies was not yet made known. Ray Pitchard. Said, said it best. He said that everything about the whole system scream, stay away. You do not come near. You're not qualified to come on your own. It was as if the temple itself was built as a giant roadblock, making sure that no one could come into God's presence uninvited or unauthorized. This should give us a sobering picture of how dangerous it was for the high priest to irreverently make a mistake in the holy presence of God. A more tragic example of that we find in Leviticus 10 with the sons of Aaron, the high priest. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. Verse 2, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are approaching me, I will be sanctified, and before all people, I will be glorified. And Daddy Aaron held his peace. God will be regarded as holy. And most of us rightly think of God as a loving father, right? Loves you more than your mother and your father ever could. But have you ever thought about God as being dangerous? 
C.S. Lewis did, in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, Susie and Lucy, Susan and Lucy asked about Aslan, the, the lion who represented Jesus Christ. She said, is he, is he safe? Beaver replied, who said he was safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course, course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. He isn't safe, but he is good, C.S. Lewis said. And the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, we cannot pick and choose the parts of God that we like and discard the parts that we don't like. The God of love is a God of justice, and he must punish sin. See, all of this sacrificial business was a brutal reminder of the cosmic treason that took place in the garden was no small matter. Our sins had so separated us from our holy God that the way back to him was not revealed until now. Before the death of Christ, the veil was the final barrier that stood between Israel and God. Indeed, the final barrier that stood between us and God. But God will make a way out of no way. We look back and appreciate the reason the veil was there in the first place. But now it becomes obvious to us why the veil was torn down in the middle, split in half. Three points to remember about God making a way out of no way. Number one, God did it. God did it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke said God did it. And Matthew and Mark says that God tore the veil from top to bottom. The fact that the veil was torn, this, this 60 feet veil thick curtain was torn from top to bottom rather than from below indicates that it was God's work. Amen? God ripped open the veil. Man could never do it. The Jewish writers say that the, the, the 60 feet veil with 30 feet wide, woven together with the thickness of a man's hand, requiring 300 men to lift it. Such a veil could never be torn by the hands of man. Salvation is God's project from start to finish. Amen? Aren't you excited that God will make a way out of no way? God did it. Number two, God did it through the death of Christ on the cross. God did it through the death of Christ on the cross. And the scripture says, and he yielded up his spirit and the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Grammatically, verse 51 doesn't make any sense without verse 50. Verse 50 is the key to interpreting the torn curtain in verse 51. See, God opened his son's flesh for us to come boldly into his presence, into the holy of holies. This is good news because Christ is the new temple of God. He replaced the old temple. See, we may not have a building right now, but Christ is our new meeting place. We ought to get excited about that. 
because Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rebuild it. He was talking about his body. When Christ died on the cross, the very next moment, the veil was torn apart, exposing the way into the glorious, holy, magnificent, eternal presence of God. And for the first time in history, the way to God is now wide open. Our King Jesus is the way forward. In fact, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to God the Father except through him. He is the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. Our hope has entered behind the curtain for us. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. You see, this was no ordinary death. When Jesus died on the cross in our place, he cried, it is finished. Tetelestai in the Greek. That phrase was found inscribed on a Roman receipt. Literally, it means it is paid. It was Rex Henderson that said it this way. He said that precisely at the moment when Christ died, God struck the giant veil of separation, a straight line downward, completely through it. And it was torn apart at the loud cry of the divine substitute lamb of God. God did it. It's finished. Done. Complete. God is satisfied with the sacrifice of his son for our sins. The work was done. It is now completed. And the cry of accomplishment and victory is now ours as Jesus shouted with his death and the veil was torn. You see, in Christ, God dropped all the charges. Aren't you excited that God made a way out of no way? You see, Peter said it this way. Jesus died the just for the unjust to what? Bring us to God. That's very significant. One preacher said, the tragedy today is that many people will go to hell with their sins paid for. To tell us die. It's not that they were too guilty. It's not that they were too bad. No. They just wouldn't receive the gift of life. Listen to the Hebrew writer explains Christ breaking through the veil. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Did you catch that? The high priest... In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, we have to bring sacrifices for himself, his sins, and the sins of the people into the holy place. But Jesus himself, our high priest, offered up himself as our sacrifice, shedding his own blood on that cross for the forgiveness of our sins, fully securing our return to God. The high priest became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And even though Jesus looked weak and powerless on the cross from the onlooker's perspective, he was in full control. 
Luke records that Jesus cried, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust my spirit. Jesus made it very clear in John chapter 10. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. Our King Jesus was not only in full control. He voluntarily chose the time of his death. But the work on that cross is something that Jesus planned way back in eternity's past. And when he finished, tearing open that veil, that barrier that stood between us, absorbing the full weight of God's wrath that we deserve, the scripture says in Hebrews, he sat down on his throne. Here's what Jesus says. Well, here's what the Lord says here through his servant in Hebrews 10. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there remains a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. <laughs> you take no pleasure in those things. I said, behold I have come to do your will, O God. It is written of me in the scroll of your book. Jesus is in absolute control. And in verse 11, it says that every high priest or every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for his enemies to become his footstool. For by a single sacrifice, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, Christ is the absolute, in absolute control while tearing down the veil with his own death. This impact of his death impact the actual earth, causing a cataclysmic earthquake. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And a supernatural earthquake resulting in the aftermath of Christ's death. This was not a natural phenomenon. The gospel truth of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place is groundbreaking. Jesus' death is death-defying. The tombs were opened. And many bodies of his saints had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Jesus' death cracked open the graves, preparing dead people to rise again. This is an unusual detail from Matthew. Even though his death cracked open the graves, none of these people rose until Jesus rose on the third day. For the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, For Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have the preeminence. You see, his death opened the graves, but his resurrection raised them to life. So what's the point of this detail? D.A. Carson said that this must be understood as the beginning of the death of deaths. Lastly, God ripped open the way for any and all to respond to him by faith in the Son of God. For in that final verse, it says, when the centurion 
and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. You could have heard, you should have heard the, the brutal mockery and the mistreatment. Amen. Earlier, leading up to his death, and even they played games with his garments. You've seen the, the bystanders passing by, deriding him and shaking their heads in disgust. You who would destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the son of God. Come down from the cross. You observe the resonant religious theologians, the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees who had a lot to say but were off course. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. That's what he said. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And even though you witnessed the thieves on the cross hurling insults at Jesus. But notice the irony of the centurion in this verse. The centurion along with his execution squad's reaction to Christ. It says that the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe. You see, Matthew climaxed the death of Christ in the tearing of the veil in this unusual confession from one you would not expect such a confession, a centurion soldier. These were Gentiles outside of the covenant community of faith made a confession that many of the Jews, Jewish leaders, truly did not make. Truly, this was the Son of God. This was the Son of God. Do you know what this essentially means for us? That when Jesus got on that cross to tear down a veil, he opened the curtain for every person to come to him and to his presence. Not just the Jews, but also Jews and Gentiles, men and women, boys and girls, blacks and whites, Asians and Hispanic, every race, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. See, that centurion represented all of us. Christ's cross work made it possible, us, possible for us to come to God without hindrance. When that veil was torn in two, those cherubims that were on that veil were torn. God removed the cherubim that blocked the way to the tree of life. And lastly, Matthew cites that these soldiers were overwhelmed and they were filled with awe. They were filled with awe. May God fill us with wonder at the beauty of our king on that cross. That we would cry with the Apostle Paul the words, I desire to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. May Christ become our greatest contemplation, our sweetest joy and delight as we reflect on the cross and him tearing that veil in half. You see, they were filled with awe. Truly, this was the Son of God. It was appropriate response of worship. They had a soul quake in the midst of an earthquake. And it's a worthy response that the Lord expects from us as we behold that scene of Christ splitting that veil. You see, this soul quake reminds me of David Crotterband, his song that says, He loves me. He is jealous for me. Loves like a hurricane. 
I am a tree, bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy, when all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory, and I realize how beautiful you are, how great your affections are for me. Oh, I wish I could sing that. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us all. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, God did it. He ripped open the veil for us to come into his holy presence. So I leave you with this. That there is, should be nothing standing in between you and God right now. With the veil being torn. Peter said that we are the universal priesthood of all believers. That you are a chosen generation. A warrior priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is there anything standing in between you and God right now? If it is. Confess it, repent, and surrender to Christ. The veil has been torn. God will make a way out of no way. Father, we thank you, Lord, and we love you for your word, and we pray that you allow your word to penetrate the depths of our heart and bring fruit to your glory. In Jesus' name, and the people of God say amen.